Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. Ten years has passed since the beginning of the global financial crash and a decade marked by government austerity and falling living standards. So how should we fund public services now and what should a new progressive economic consensus look like? I'm Connor Pope, Deputy Editor of Progress. There's no Alison McGovern or Richard Angel this week, but I have Progress Deputy Director Stephanie Lloyd with me, and we'll be speaking to Walthamstow MP Stella Creasy about PFI, and the IPPR's Tom Cabassi and Labour in the City's Alan Simpson about economic justice. Private finance initiatives are more commonly known as PFI, where the public sector uses private sector investment to fund and manage public projects such as hospitals. In the short term, this is ostensibly to help get infrastructure projects done quickly, but in the medium and long term, it's costing the state more money than was anticipated. I'm here with Stella Creasy and Stephanie Lloyd to discuss this. Stella, you recently wrote that private finance initiatives are like higher purchase agreements, superficially a cheap way to buy something, but the costs quickly add up and before you know it, the debt is crippling. Before we go into how we should approach this issue in future, I just want to ask what can be done about these contracts now that already exist? As you point out, governments of both parties have pursued this idea for decades now and almost a billion pounds will be paid out on it over the next five years. Is that money already in effect gone? 10 billion. 10 billion. Huh? In fact, the, well, it's 220 billion pounds worth of total God, commitments that's, to that, that's PFI. Loads, that's loads more than the 1 billion that I put in the introduction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thought you might want to put that one <laughs> That's why it's a big deal. <laughs> but is, is, so is there any way to kind of do anything about that? I think it's a, people talk about PFI as though it's some big ideological choice. It isn't because every government's been doing it because it's about trying to keep borrowing off the books. So being able to say that when you are reporting your debt figures, you're only reporting what your repayments are. But that's why it's like a higher purchase agreement, because what superficially looks like a reasonable sum of money to be paying out each year for something, when you add it up, is immense. And we have £220 billion worth of outstanding PFI commitments in this country, around over 700 projects. Now, they've been signed since the early 1990s. We've continued to have them as a form called PF2, because this government claimed to do a reform programme of PFI and came up with something that was similar, according to the National Audit Office. There is absolutely a question about how do we borrow in a value for money way. And I think progressives should always be absolutely obsessed with value for money because we know it's the poorest people in our communities that pay out the most of their money in, in taxation. So how we use that money well is a really important question. That is separate from whether or not we can work with the private sector in running things and building things. And my concern about PFI has always been that people have looked at working with private companies to run services without asking about the cost of borrowing from in the first place. 
because there aren't that many companies that do it, the costs are much higher than they would have been if you'd borrowed on the public sector. That's before you even get onto what these companies have then done, which is to then sell on the debt because the cost initially was calculated on the risk of having built something. So the risk that you might agree to build a hospital and run one and then you wouldn't get planning permission for it or there'd be a problem with the site. Those costs of risk are calculated throughout the entire contract. That's why they are so very expensive. And that's why for these companies, there is absolutely no incentive to renegotiate these contracts. And it's worth looking at the contracts. I'm a, I'm a bit of a nerd and I have actually gone through the 400 pages of the standard contracts. And they are very clear that once you're locked into one of these, you can't really renegotiate them because without incurring costs. And that's been one of the problems with PFI is that, frankly, it's a very expensive way of borrowing, but it's also incredibly expensive to get out of. In fact, it would cost as much to cancel these contracts as it does to continue them. So we can't simply break the contracts? Well, not without incurring a big legal fight. And I'm certainly confident that these companies have some very expensive lawyers because having talked to areas where they have tried to renegotiate, I mean, these companies will charge you, for example, for sending you their own papers. You know, they are absolutely avaricious on this. There is a school in uh, Liverpool that's actually empty that was built under PFI, but we're still paying back £4 million a year in repayments for it. Because what's the incentive to them to cancel that contract? We've committed to, to paying this money to them and it's a contract that will run for 30 years. And is that the school that's not even open anymore? No, it's, it's been closed because they don't need the school places. And look, one of the problems with, with private finance, um, and the National Audit Office have pointed this out, is that we were making commitments to pay back money over 30 years when budgets were only guaranteed for five years. So no department could be sure they would have that money. One of the challenges that we see, I mean, I got interested in PFI because it was affecting my local hospital, Whips Cross Hospital. We've also got PFI schools in my constituency, and I see it firsthand. You can't change these payments. So you've got hospitals struggling with their budgets with a payment they can't get out of. So £150 million a year is what Bart's is repaying on its PFI that was a £1 billion build, and ultimately they will pay back £7 billion, half of which is interest payments. It is exactly like a higher purchase agreement or a payday loan for the public sector. Now, we can definitely have a debate about how we would move forward because we obviously need even infrastructure in this country. But with 700 of these projects costing so much money to the public sector, I don't think we can leave the existing contracts alone. So we have to look at what we can do. And I think we can be quite radical about what we can do that doesn't incur further costs, but actually get some cash back for the public sector. You're seeing councils now that are going bust and they've got, so Northamptonshire has got £240 million worth of PFI repayments it's got to make over the next couple of years, of which £77 million is interest payments. Mm. Northamptonshire Council has obviously gone into administration. That local authority will end up cutting public services, but won't be able to cut that debt unless we do something to change that. But you you say we can't break the contracts and Mm. there's very little incentive for the companies involved to renegotiate the contracts. So what, what is it that we can do then? Well, I'm always a great believer in the concept of self-regulation or intervention. And I think we have to be very clear with these companies that the game is up. And either they come to the table and help renegotiate. Now, I would never ask a single hospital or a school to renegotiate on their own. And, and let's also be very clear, every single one of these hospitals, of schools, the fire stations needed to be built. So we need these facilities. But if you renegotiate across the portfolio of these companies, of the Innisfrees, of the Semperians, of the, the asset management companies, then you can start doing a deal. And actually, what a good treasury should do, and the government has ignored this argument for several years, is get those companies, the eight or nine of them that own 92% of these projects, and say, right, we want to renegotiate across these portfolios because actually we can see you've made excessive profits. 
one of the things that people don't realise is that factored into the decision to go with PFI was a an analysis of how much tax these companies would pay, and particularly corporation tax. And a lot of these deals were signed at a time when corporation tax was 30%. Well, now corporation tax is going to go to 17%, 18%. So these companies have an unexpected windfall. Um, and I'm very clear that if they won't get around a table and renegotiate these costs, and we have a government that is refusing to take this action, then Parliament should act. And what Parliament should do is make it very clear that it would back a windfall tax on these companies. And actually, taxation, when you look at the contracts, is one of the things they can't get out of to say either you come up with a deal which cuts these costs or we will do it for you and get that money back and put it into our public sector. Because I don't want to see people in Northamptonshire having their services cut, but these companies still making the money that they are from the excessive profits. I don't think that's a fair world. And I think for every progressive, the radical and rational thing to do is to focus on how we can actually get money back from them now. If Labour leads this fight, I believe we could get those companies around a table within a matter of months because they understand that PFI is something that nobody can really defend anymore. And what kind of outcome do you think they do you expect from that? What, how do you expect them, the companies involved, to kind of respond to? Well, we've already seen how, how they've responded. Um, they're not happy, it's <laughs> fair to say. Um, actually, their, their, their share that price... That still seems like quite a big fight, if, if they're still Absolutely. not ready to budge on but, it. But, but legally, we can change the tax rate. So we can introduce a windfall tax. What we can't do legally, well, without fully compensating them is tear up the contracts. So one of the things for us is to have the right challenge to these companies about something they know they can't defend. So their lawyers could absolutely defend their existing contracts, but they couldn't defend being asked to pay the amount of tax that they expected to pay at the time they signed those contracts. It's a thing called the Treasury Green Book, where this value for money assessment is made, which specifically includes the amount of tax. So there's a very strong legal case that, that we could get them on that. Now, frankly, what I want is for us to be saying, that's our big stick. You guys come up with a deal now because I talk to people who work in the healthcare service, talking to head teachers who are basically looking at sacking staff, but continuing to pay on these existing rates and these contracts. And the longer this goes on, the more difficult decisions, the more cuts in public services we are going to see. And it's a really pressing issue. There's something that you touched on a bit there was uh, you say no one can really defend PFI anymore. But you also said that obviously these hospitals and schools needed to be built uh, 15 years ago or kind of whenever they were. Um, obviously, the last Labour government was heavily criticised at the time, in fact, uh, from various parts, especially from the left for its use of PFI contracts. Steph, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about this as well. Do you think there was a point to using them at the time or, or was it wrong all along? And essentially, there needs to be a bit of an apology about how we approach that. I don't, I don't think there should necessarily be an apology. I think one of the things that we need to do is learn the lessons from the contracts that we used previously. I don't think the idea of having whole owned, you know, not like unequivocally refusing to bring in any form of private money at the expense of a lost generation of people who need schools and hospitals is not a progressive thing to do and it's not a Labour thing to do. But I think Stella is utterly right in terms of the focus has to be on how do we deal with the situation as it is now, but also then what do we do going forwards? Do we just say, therefore, wholesale nationalisation of absolutely everything and therefore we should have less money going into this and less services for people to be able to access? No, I don't think that is the answer, but there has to be a different way 
that means that we can bring in that money um, and we can use innovation from the private sector, we can use social enterprise, but that doesn't therefore mean that we have to be caught up in the kind of contracts that we have been doing before. Like it is not a binary choice to go where we can either have full nationalisation or we get stuck with contracts that are unacceptable because actually, you know, as Stella said, like, we needed those schools and why should we say around to an entire generation of people and go, sorry, we can't afford your education this generation. Hopefully your kids will get a better shot next time if we're doing better as an economy. Like that's just not an acceptable way to go into things. So Stella, I mean, what would you, what kind of thing do you think we should be doing going forwards? So I think one of the questions for me is given that government is such a good bet to lend to because governments don't let schools close, they don't let hospitals go bust, Mm -hmm. why were we paying such a high cost of interest on our loans? Mm. And the answer is there isn't very much competition for our business, ironically. So for me, the answer on this, I think you have to separate out how you raise money to to, to build infrastructure from how you might work with private companies in running something. And if you're talking about the cost of actually borrowing and building stuff, I mean, look, right now, interest rates are very low, but we know that, especially with Brexit, Mm -hmm. economic uncertainty, these things are happening. But fundamentally, there's still not very many options. If you're a local authority that desperately needs a new school... Because of Treasury rules, then PFI was really the only game in town. And I say, I'm not going to blame or get cross. We are where we are with it. Mm. What we need to do is open up that competition because for these eight or nine companies, when there's nobody to compete against, of course, they can set very high rates well, of interest. It's a complete and, monopoly on the market. And, um, well, it, it's certainly, it's certainly not mm. a fair fight for these local authorities. So, for example, we know that there are not-for-profit pension investment authorities that would like to invest in public infrastructure schemes. Mm. Uh, we know there are local government agencies trying to look at bond schemes uh, in other countries you have a sovereign wealth fund there are a number of different range of options that you could explore the fundamental point is that there needs to be some competition against these firms so that the deals that they are offering to the public sector could be more competitive in the future alongside public sector borrowing you know we have to make sure that our credit rating is good because obviously then our cost of borrowing goes up and again that hits our ability as a society to act the fundamental challenge here is that for years and years people have looked at pfi and looked at the outcome and said, well, you know, people are paying £300 for a light bulb. That's not good. They've not looked at the fundamental start of the process, which is why did we get into such an expensive deal with so little flexibility, with no break clauses, for example? There are solutions out there. There are very radical solutions out there. But the most important thing that we do is we don't wait around because the damage that these contracts are doing to the budgets of public services across the country means I don't think we can afford to do that as a society. So for me, the windfall tax idea is an urgent, pressing and effective way to get these companies to play ball. Because believe me, when you've got companies like Innisfree, which owns my local hospital, has 18 members of staff, so it's not running the hospital, it's just a financing organisation, and is making something like £25 billion from PFI. And my local authority is is downgrading um, nurses' positions in order to try and save money and it you would have had the its challenge entire that we're budget facing. cut by, what, about 50% over the last seven yeah. years or so? We so. know that a billion pounds out of the money that's being given to the NHS over the next couple of years yeah. is going out in profit to PFI companies. If you think that's a quarter of all the money that we're putting into our NHS. So absolutely, we do have to have a more competitive market for lending to the state in order to get a better deal for public infrastructure. But we can't afford not to do something about these 700 contracts either. No, totally agree. I wonder uh, how much of this do you think is from an issue of progressives essentially do see that 
or people on the left generally see funding into the public sector as a as an innate good because i know i've definitely stood on doorsteps before and people have gone well you know what the last labor government do about the nhs or whatever and go well actually you know we put in more uh, funding into the nhs than any previous government i kind of used i've used that as an argument do you think that is a kind of a problem with the way that we uh, look at look at the public sector in general no, let, let's be clear. Our, our public sector is crumbling in lots of different places. It needs investment. It's also a bit of an anathema to argue that public and private, you know, where do we think the money is raised from when we issue mm. public guilts? It, it's about people's confidence in government's ability to manage money well. And one of the ways that you show that you can manage money well is if you take a strong look at the APRs and the interest rates that you're paying. I find it extraordinary that there is no central database, no what you'd call a doomsday book of what we owe to whom and what rates we're paying. Because what Carillion shows you is the idea that, that in working with the private sector, you transfer risk to the private sector just doesn't hold true either. And yet with Carillion, we had a PF2 deal going into the Royal Liverpool that knew that Carillion was in financial difficulty. And not a month later, the Department for Transport was giving them contracts for HS2. Either one arm of government wasn't speaking to the other or one arm of government was propping up the other. Without a doomsday, but without proper financial accounting, nobody could really tell what was going on. I go back to what I said at the start. This is a massive issue for progressives because when we spend money well, then equality goes forward. When we spend money badly, it is the poorest in our society who pay the price. And finally, I just want to ask, there's a, is there a vote coming up on Parliament uh, soon about this issue? Could you tell us a bit about that? Yep. So I have tabled amendments to the finance bill, which have cross-party support on a PFI windfall tax. Because, frankly, I'm sick of hearing Conservative MPs get up and tell us that PFI was all to do with New Labour. When we've seen this government use PFI and sign things off, and when we know there is something we could do now, I think in politics, you can have all the analysis you want. It's the actions that you take that drive things forward. So I'm hoping that we can get support for these votes to show that Parliament is willing to act. Because I think these, these companies right now are relying on the idea that the government will defend them because somehow there isn't anything sensible you can do. This this is a way, and I've talked to lawyers about it, um, we've looked at the figures, it would raise probably a couple of billion pounds, which is no small beer, to start helping those councils, those local hospitals that are struggling right now with those debts. So on the 21st of February, there will be a vote on this in Parliament. And I really hope that we can show these companies we mean business, because otherwise they're just going to keep printing money, which is essentially what a PFI contract is for them right now. And is there is there anything that our listeners can do in terms of, you know, supporting you on those amendments and getting in touch with their MPs? Yeah, or? so um, obviously it'd be great uh, to have other more MPs, I say MPs across all the parties, apart from the Conservatives, but we're working on them. <laughs> Um, have signed have signed this amendment so far. Um, it'd be great for your listeners to contact their MP and ask them to support it. We also have a campaign pack for local constituency Labour parties because I think it's really important that people understand, look, Labour is a party of solutions. That's how we make a difference. So we have a solution here, something we could do that could make a massive difference to our public services and the investment that they get. Let's get out there and show the public that even when there's something that's gone wrong, we can think about how to put it right. Great. And what, and what date will that be coming up in Parliament? It's Wednesday the 21st of February and it's the Finance Bill. Brilliant. Stella, thanks for joining us today. Stay with us because next me and Stephanie will be speaking to Tom Cabassi and Alan Simpson about a new economic model. Hi, it's Alison McGovern here at Chair of Progress. I've just got a short message. If you're enjoying the Progressive Britain podcast so far, there are three things that you can do which would really help us out. The first thing is to subscribe to our podcast so that you always get the latest episode. The second thing is to rate us 
tell us what you think. And the final thing is to leave us a little review. We love to hear what people think and the best ones get read out on the review show on a Friday. And if we really like what you've got to say, you could even win a progress mug. So don't forget, subscribe, rate, review. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We're here now with Tom Cabassi, who's director at the IPPR and chair of IPPR's Commission on Economic Justice, and Alan Simpson, who's CEO of Labour in the City and a member of the Progress Strategy Board. Tom, if we can start with you, could you tell us a little bit about your Economic Justice Commission? What have you done so far and and what do you have planned coming up? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on your programme today. So we established the Commission on Economic Justice in 2016. It's a two-year programme thinking about how can we rethink uh, the UK's economic model. So there are about 24 commissioners, um, some high-profile names, people like the Archbishop of Canterbury as a commissioner, Mustafa Suleiman, who's the one of the co-founders of DeepMind, the world's most advanced artificial intelligence company, Francois Grady from the TUC, Mariana Mazzucato, who's an eminent economist, uh, Jürgen Meyer, the CEO of Siemens, the head of the City of London Corporation, uh, Sarah Bryson, who's a community organiser up in Newcastle. So we've got a great panel of people. And so far, we've published our interim report that essentially made the case for change. Why is now the moment that we need to to change Britain's economic model. And we're now working on our final report, which we published in September this year. In between, we're publishing discussion papers along the way. So we did a paper on automation, on wealth and ownership, on industrial strategy, a whole range of different topics. So the discussion papers are continuing to come out every month or so. Uh, and then we're working towards our final report. Cool. Um, and so what what can we expect from the final report? Will it be a kind of big, chunky document that kind of takes all of that in from the discussion papers so far? Yeah. So the, so the idea of the final report is to be actually able to say, this is what a new economic settlement should look like for the country. So to draw together all the different thinking from the commissioners and from the research team here at IPPR to say, actually, this is a way forward. So in the interim report, we set out a vision for the economy in 2030. And in a way, uh, the final report is to say, well, how do we get going in the right direction, uh, given that we've been going in the wrong wrong direction for quite some considerable time. And what what's the kind of response from the Labour leadership at the moment? What is it is it being kind of positive? I know that you've quoted kind of John McDonnell and some of the kind of things that he said in the report. Yeah, I mean, we so we've engaged across all political parties. So the commission uh, met in Downing Street with the prime minister's top officials. Uh, John McDonnell spoke at the economic conference that we held in November around the uh, publication of the interim report. So we've got good engagement from across all political parts of the political spectrum. Vince Cable said nice things about it. Caroline Lucas from the Green Party. So there's there's been really good traction. And I think what that is recognition of is the fact that all politicians understand that the current way of doing things isn't working. I mean, that's eminently clear. And all of them are looking for answers and for a different approach and a, and a way forward. So I think, you know, in a way, the interest reflects the importance of the questions that we're asking. Alan, if I could bring you in. You recently told the Evening Standard, uh, I think that there are more for Corbynism in the financial sector than 
one may imagine. Is there a kind of death knell for the centre-left and, and the liberal mixed-state economy? Or, or actually, has a shift to the left meant that uh, that kind of has disappeared? No, I think it's more about the idea that quite a lot of the policy we've seen has been relatively sensible. So give you an example, 26% corporation tax, that's not high on a global average. It's certainly not high inside the OECD countries. And I think it points towards something which the city does respect, which is the current Labour leadership are attempting to grapple with a, a bigger question, which is if you have a country which needs to pay for a very significant retirement cost, needs to pay for high quality education, needs to high, uh, pay for quite significant infrastructure spend, that requires a taxation level above the amount that you would have in a in a in a struggling African country or in in Asia. Can, can I just come in on that? Yeah. So, so one of the issues that we have to confront now is the fact that there is a big gap between what we spend in the UK and how much we tax, and we're simply not taxing enough. And how has Britain got away with that for such a long period of time? And the answer is by selling off the family silver. So there is an absolutely shocking statistic. That between 1980 and 2014, across all OECD countries, so that's the rich countries club, that's the 40 most developed countries in the world, the US, Canada, uh, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, most European countries, across the entire OECD, Britain accounted for 45% of the total receipts uh, from privatisation. Isn't that just absolutely astonishing? And so what we've been doing is selling off public assets, selling off the family silver in order to keep taxes relatively low uh, whilst having a kind of European level of public services. And that can't continue forever for the very simple reason that eventually you run out of things to privatise. Right? So when the government's trying to privatise things like the land re registry, it tells you that you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel because you've privatised and sold off everything else that you could think of. Now that that's reached the end of the road, um, it's pretty clear to me that if we want to keep a kind of European-style social model, um, then we're going to need to see taxes rise in order to pay for it. My, my suspicion is that internationally, this is a question we'll need to grapple with. In the same way we had a, a G20 agenda on regulation post-financial crisis, I think we do need to see something approaching a G, G20 approach to tax. Because in the developed economies, which are largely post-growth, we have a lot to pay for and a very low tax base to pay for it with. I completely agree. I think a, a, a G20 agreement for a minimum level of corporation tax would be a really good thing. And what that minimum floor would be is open to debate, but it's something that really ought to be on the agenda for the G20. I think uh, talking about higher taxes is really interesting because it, it's not something that I think was really on the kind of agenda of, of politics uh, 10 or so years ago. Uh, Tom, you recently said that at the budget in November, the Chancellor delivered the eulogy for an economic model that had fallen apart. Do you think that both public and expert consensus on economics has shifted left? It's a really good question. So I think it's a really interesting moment in time. So there are these periods that we've observed, and we talk about this in the interim report, where you have a breakdown in the existing economic model, and then a new settlement forms. So uh, the Wall Street crash in 1929 marked the start of the breakdown of the economic model that existed then, and then the post-war settlement created a new economic model. Uh, in the 70s, you had the oil crisis and the, the oil shock and stagflation, and that marked the end of the post-war consensus and the creation of a new 
uh, economic settlement under Thatcher and, and Reagan. The argument that we make is that 2008 marked the f- beginning of the period of breakdown, that we're coming to the end of that period of breakdown in the old economic model, but the new model is yet to be formed. So there's sort of yeah. everything to play for in terms of what does this new model look like. But just to be clear, why, why did I say that about the budget in November? But it was the shocking state of the economy. Um, it was one of those sort of weird things where people said, well, there was no sort of pasty tax, so didn't he do well, while simultaneously announcing the biggest ever downgrade in productivity expectations and wage forecasts, so that we're now saying that actually um, deficits going to continue um, until uh, the 2030s. And that productivity is set to flatline for such a long period that we're going to have the longest period of wage stagnation since the Napoleonic War. But that is not a normal state of affairs, or or at least it shouldn't be. Wage stagnation has become the new normal in the UK, but that isn't where it should be. And the British economy has been doing really poorly in the last 10 years from the perspective of ordinary households. It's got the most unequal economy in Europe. Income inequality is stubbornly high. Wealth inequality has been hugely uh, on the rise. Um, and most ordinary people haven't seen their living standards improve. The important thing about that is because, you know, there are many things I can do, deep economic policy, probably not one of them. But <laughs> the idea actually is what does that mean to people on a day-to-day basis? So when you look at things like stagnating wages, but you are seeing the cost of living rising in the way that it is, like this means that we are, as we say, like the country is getting more unequal. Like that is not a progressive thing. That's not what we want. Like we're seeing a situation where people can't, you know, food banks are on the rise. And and this is this is decisions that people make and this is economic decisions that people make that then have such a disproportionate impact on those most in need within society. And it's something that we absolutely should be calling out as much as possible and doing whatever we can to try and change that. So Tom was saying that um, essentially there is the consensus about the need for a new economic model, but no consensus yet on what that should be. Stephanie, you know more about the kind of inside workings of the Labour Party than most people. Do you think that that is also true in the Labour Party or do you think actually people have essentially, there is an economic consensus in the Labour Party and that is kind of old style nationalisation? I worry that that might be the consensus and I think a lot of that is because of obviously the populism uh, around Corbyn and his leadership but actually I also think there hasn't been really enough challenge to a lot of that um, in terms of the economic model and what we should be doing. I mean we've just been speaking to Stella about PFI um, and one of the things that she said that came across so clearly to me was this idea of if you don't have any level of competition, nobody wins from this. So if you only have eight giant companies that own 92% of PFI contracts, like there is no competition on the terms and conditions and what happens and the interest rates that that go from that. And actually, I think we even saw, and we spoke about this previously with Andrew Adonis when it came to uh, national rail infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, and renationalizing the railways, which is obviously where a lot of this conversation came from within the Labour Party and the, that kind of policy. And um, you saw with things like East Coast, like having that mixed model of private and public ownership in, in particular types of infrastructure that we need, not how we run them on a day-to-day basis, but how we can fund some of those is really important. And we already, we have other models, like we're the Labour Party, our sister party is the co-op. Like the idea that there aren't other ways to do this is absolutely ludicrous. Yeah. So there's a, there's an interesting distinction here between when you have a, a, a private company providing a, a public service, 
often where they failed, it hasn't been because there hasn't been enough competition, but because the competition on price has been too great, and it's turned out that they haven't been able to serve the the, the, the contract within within the price structure mm. they they described. And actually, I'm I'm rarely interested in ownership models. I, I'd make the point that you can have very effective private companies, very effective public companies. Some of the most innovative technological developments over the last fifty years, certainly the ones, for example, inside iPhones, have been from the U.S. government in particular. So that ownership question is is rarely relevant to me. It's more about the whether or not it's a it's a sector that can provide pricing signals. If it can, if you can have competition, generally speaking, uh, that competition is a good thing. If it's a sector like, for instance, trains where you can't, it, it it rarely is. But I'm very nervous of any direction of travel towards privileging co-ops, privileging nationalization, privileging, for instance, credit unions, which fail at a rate of one a month. This isn't necessarily an effective direction of travel. It's much more about being smart as to which model is appropriate for which bit of the economy. Tom, what do you make of that? Is is that something that has come up through uh, through the Economic uh, Justice Commission so far? Yeah, I mean, I I suppose on these questions, it's always a bit more nuanced uh, and the and the coalitions are, are, are less obvious than they might at first appear so you take the water companies right the with the water companies the financial times has been saying that water privatization has basically been a disaster and it's time to reverse that um so that that's an unusual coalition right the shadow chancellor john mcdonnell and the financial times in agreement on water renationalization and if you look at the water industry you have to do something and the reason you have to do something is that industry has gone very very badly wrong so there's been no productivity growth whatsoever in the water industry since 2010 uh, the debt level has risen every year since privatization in 1994 and is reaching an unsustainable level. There's a shocking fact um, that has recently come out that the water industry has paid out more in dividends than it has in than it's achieved in profits. So it's paying out more to its shareholders than it's actually making in profits, which means that it's basically raising debt and giving that uh, out to its shareholders. I think the Thames Water... Uh, investment program will likely conclude, I believe, the, the, that it's in 357 years. So uh, it, it simply isn't working. So there needs to be a different approach because the current approach has so clearly failed. Now, what that looks like, I think it, mutuals are probably a quite a good way forward for water. There's mutual, I think, for instance, that operates in Wales. That seems to make a lot of sense. And I thought it was relatively interesting that Labour's Alternative Models of Ownership Conference at the weekend um, was sort of chaired with the co-op party saying, you know, mutuals and cooperatives are an interesting way forward. On the railways, let's just be really clear, we do already have um, government-run rail. It's just not the British government, it's foreign governments, right? So <laughs> there is a sort of surreal thing where we're having this argument about, you know, can governments run the rail industry and actually foreign governments are running our rail industry. We're having an argument about um, you know, what's the role of government and saying government can't possibly be involved in the energy industry. And yet I got my bill at the weekend from uh, EDF. And when you look at what the acronym is, it's, you know, Electricité de France, right? It is the French state <laughs> electricity company that is selling me my energy at home. So I don't think this debate is as straightforward as, you know, one thing is completely retrospective and, and, and looking back to the 70s. There already is a mixed economy. It's just that we have some sort of weird theological um, obsession with with uh, having the state out of these things, but mm. somehow foreign-owned state companies are fine, and I, I don't really understand that. But 
Labour's general position does seem to be more towards nationalisation rather than trying to mix it up a bit with with mutuals and, and that sort of thing. Is that not fair to say? I don't know because I'm not. Uh, you know, you'd have to ask the Labour Party about um, mm. their thoughts. Their thoughts on that. I mean, I I watched Peston at the weekend, and the Shadow Chancellor sat on the sofa and said, um, "This isn't a return to 1970s style nationalisation." Uh, it's all about mutuals and cooperatives. So I would have thought probably the reverse is true of what you just said, mm. that in fact Labour is saying what they want is mutuals and cooperatives rather than old-fashioned nationalisation. But that's based on you know watching Peston yesterday morning. <laughs> <laughs> and how much of this is possible to achieve um, post-Brexit? Because at the moment we are heading towards hard Brexit with leaving the single market and leaving the customs union. And that will obviously radically alter... Um, the economic outlook for the country. How much does do we have to alter our ambitions into what we can achieve post Brexit uh, because of that? The weird thing that's going on at the moment is that the hard Brexiteers are adopting a position that is simultaneously anti-business and anti-worker. Right, that is a kind of quite a magical position to have come up with. So I, I hope they're not successful. That we end up staying in a customs union and uh, are aligned to the. Uh, single market. I think that's the position broadly that that um, that the trade unions take and that the CBI takes. So I, I think at some level, I don't know how much the government can drive through an agenda um, that is anti-business and anti-worker at the same time. So my hope is that we end up with a deal that keeps us very close to the European market. If we don't, I think the economic con- consequences um, could be very serious. Alan, I think that was your point about people in the city supporting Labour at the last election, wasn't it? That actually a lot of them were looking to do so because they wanted to kind of shape Brexit and, and the way it was turning out. I think that's right. That If you look at what happened to the volatility in the market in the run-up to the Brexit vote and then in the run-up to 2017, where in both instances the polls closed on what people assumed was going to happen, there wasn't a great deal of volatility in 2017. And one of the reasons is because... Yes, people might have been nervous about perhaps a higher tax base, a greater level of nationalisation, but they were factoring in the likelihood of a softer Mm. Brexit. But I do think there's something we need to be careful about, which is this lexity idea that leaving the European Union gives you more ability to, for instance, nationalise. Because a lot of the models that, for instance, John McDonnell has described are reasonably centre-line European social democratic models which are already possible in France and Germany and elsewhere. So I don't think moving away from the state aid rules would help. But clearly if we see a fall in the revenues that we develop as a country as a result of uh, the economy declining, that will negatively affect our ability to do a lot of what we're talking about here. Because as I say, I'm not that interested in ownership models. I rarely find it's that relevant. Often, when we have an underperforming service, the NHS is an example, trains are an example, the Karelian mess is perhaps an example. What those three things have in common is that the state spending as the customer was not sufficient in, e- in either of those three cases, regardless of the model of, of, of uh, provision. And in fact, as, as Tom was pointing out earlier, the, if the French state government can run our energy companies, then presumably the British state can do it also well in the single market. Yeah, they absolutely can. It's, it's simply not true to say that we would have a material ability to 
implement social democracy in a more pronounced way after after leaving the European Union than we currently do. Just to give you a, a quick number on that, right? So in, in the UK, government spending is about 40% of GDP. Uh, in Denmark, it's 57%. So you'd have to believe that somehow Denmark can exist in the EU at 57%, so a, a majority of the economy being public. Um, and the UK somehow couldn't at 40%. So I, I just empirically, it doesn't seem to be the case that you can't have a more socially democratic uh, model um, within the EU simply because Britain has clearly uh, got a much smaller public realm than Denmark, than Sweden, than uh, Germany or France. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask, uh, so what, what kind of um, stuff is coming up next for the IPPR's uh, Economic Justice Commission? Well, we're continuing to, to publish our discussion papers. We've got a paper coming out on uh, nations and regions, on a citizen's wealth fund, mm. a number of other interesting topics. So we publish pretty regularly. And then the final report, as I say, in uh, in September. Fantastic. We'll be looking forward to it. Well, Tom, Alan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Every week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question with the answer revealed on Friday's show. So, Connor, what's your pub quiz question of the week? So this week, I'm asking which BBC journalist ran on the same slate as John Landsman at Cambridge in a university election? I actually know this one. I'm so excited. Well, if, if, if anyone wants any clues, this BBC journalist was kind of in the news for other reasons over the weekend, although not the real news. Not the real news, no. <laughs> um, I think that made that more complicated than revealing anything there, haven't I? But we'll see. If you think you know the answer, do tweet at me at Connor Pope or email office at progressonline.org.uk and you could win a Progress mug when the answer is announced on Friday morning. We need to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Stella, Tom and Alan joining us today. Do send in your questions and comments through Twitter, email, or best of all, as an iTunes review over the next few days, and we'll respond to them on Friday's show with the best iTunes comment winning a prize. And don't forget to subscribe and rate. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton who produced this podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.